It was uh, good to spend a little bit of time at the men's retreat this weekend, and uh, I can report that as far as I know, everybody was behaving themselves, at least while I was there. I can't take any responsibility for what happens after I leave. But I told Terry that uh, John Walkup was doing a great job just sharing his heart. He had prepared well and had some great things to offer the men, um, and I know they'll be blessed by that, but I think probably... Uh, equally as significant as hearing what he had to say was to hear the conversations that the men had with one another, uh, considering what uh, John presented and just sharing what's going on with life. Um, we don't get a chance to do that very often, and, and I had the privilege to travel back with Todd, and I would say that that uh, was probably the highlight of my retreat, was just to get a chance to meet somebody and spend some time with someone that I didn't know very well until this weekend. So uh, it was a great time. I want to begin with telling you a familiar story. I know we've heard this before about a, a famous tightrope walker who lived in uh, Paris. And he was new, known for kind of doing the extraordinary, taking something simple and, and making it spectacular. And he would string a tightrope across tall buildings and, and he would do things like, like walk across that tightrope without a net. And then he would blindfold himself and do the same thing. And probably his trademark was being able to do this while pushing a wheelbarrow across that tightrope. And so he kind of got a name for himself, as you might expect. And somebody from within the United States, somebody who's pretty wealthy, heard about what this man was doing and says, I have a challenge for you. Why don't you come to the United States and let's, let's do this over Niagara Falls. I don't think you can do it. The man says, I think I can. So he comes to the United States. They set this thing up, and sure enough, he walks across that thing. But not only that, he did it twice. The second time, he did it blindfolded. (laughs) As if that wasn't enough, he does it a third time, pushing a wheelbarrow. He gets across to the other side, turns to the man who had invited him, and said, now do you believe that I can do it? (laughs) He said, well, of course I do. I mean, you just did it. It was amazing. He said, well, then get in the wheelbarrow. Yeah. You see, there's a big difference between saying what you believe and believing what you say. As Jesus begins his ministry, he starts to do miraculous signs. But as we've talked about, they had a purpose. They had a purpose to validate some claim he was making or reveal some aspect of who he was. And we know as we look at Scripture, the the common response to to this is that it says, they saw and they believed. But look at, if you would, John chapter 3, verse 23. John chapter 3, verse 23. There's a few verses that I want to to look at as we uh, begin our time this morning. And we'll walk through this in a little more detail in terms of what's happening in this particular scene. But in verse 23, it says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, here it is, many believed in his name, beholding the signs which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. Because he did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. In a sense, what's saying here is Jesus didn't necessarily believe in their believing. Regardless of what they were saying with their mouth, Jesus knew 
what was going on in their heart. And so it says that he didn't entrust himself to them because he knew by and large they weren't truly trusting themselves to him. At least not to the point of believing that he was God incarnate. But as we see all throughout Scripture, the desire of Jesus was to move people from a place of saying what they believe to truly believing what they say. To know and understand that Jesus was the Son of the living God and that salvation was in Him alone. And God's desire, we need to understand, it was true in the time of Christ and, it, and it's true even to this day. The examples that we see in Scripture as we are able to kind of peek behind the curtain of people's hearts are intended to represent man's hearts throughout history. In other words, what we see of the people in Scripture are a reflection of who we are as well. And the truth of God's Word is intended to bring us each to a place of faith. And the question that we're often asked is, are we willing to take Jesus at His Word? Will we get in the wheelbarrow? That's what we're going to talk about together this morning. So before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we uh, thank You for the time that the men are having and we pray for them as they wrap up the retreat this weekend, that those things that You have spoken clearly to their heart will be solidified so that when they come back, as Paul indicated, they see life differently. And because they see life differently, they will in fact live life differently. And really, I pray the same for us this morning. That as we examine your word, we see life differently. And because we do, I pray that we live life differently. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. If you would, turn to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. Our passage this morning begins with another um, reference to time. And I want us to kind of unpack, as we did last time, what this is all about. So John chapter 4, verse 43. It says, and after the two days, and we'll explain that here in a minute, he went forth from there into Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast. And they themselves also went to the feast. And he came, therefore, again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. So what we have here is Jesus has returned to the place that we left off last, this past Sunday, when He turned the water into wine. But we know that there's been a lot that's happened since He was here last. And I want us to to be able to look at that together. When He left the wedding of Cana, He went to a city called Capernaum which is on the this coast of the Sea of Galilee. And it says in Scripture that he took some time and, and spent some time resting while he was in Capernaum. And then he went to Jerusalem. It tells us that he goes to Jerusalem in order to, to celebrate the Passover meal. And although things had been pretty hidden up to this point in terms of who knew about what he was doing, because we talked about in that wedding of Cana that there were only a few people who witnessed that miracle, right? His disciples and the servants who were there with him. 
But something happened in Jerusalem that would change things because he made quite a scene. And I want us to look at that together. Turn to uh, John chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. John chapter 2, verse 13. So by this time he's left Capernaum. He's headed to Jerusalem. And look at what it says in verse 13. And the Passover of Jesus, uh, the, and the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers seated. And he made a scour- scourge of cords, a, a whip, and, and drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for thy house will consume me. The Jews therefore answered and said to him, What sign do you show to us, seeing that you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews therefore said, it took 46 years to build this temple. You will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this. And they believed the scriptures and the word which Jesus had spoken. So if everything was hidden up to this point, not anymore, right? Quite a scene has been created here at the Passover, when all the people have migrated in to celebrate this feast together. But why was Jesus so upset with what was happening at the temple? He had these people who were selling sheep and, and goat and oxen and doves. What were those used for? Sacrifices, right? Instead of giving from their heart, instead of taking from their own possession. They were going through the ritual of religion and they were saying, oh, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it when I get there. There'll be people people selling stuff and I don't have to take from my own. I'll just buy from them and, and go through the motions and it'll all work out. And Jesus said, no, your heart is not seeking after God. You've made this a place where you're trying to make an exchange. You're trying to barter with God and that's not what this is all about. Jesus condemns their actions because their heart is not in the right place. And notice what they say in response to that in verse 18. It says, The Jews therefore answered and said to him, What sign do you show us seeing that you do, saying that you do these things? See, the actions that, that they were going through by buying these sacrifices in the temple already exposed the condition of their heart. And then the fact that they needed a sign to prove something showed that they were truly not believing in God. A sign wouldn't change anything because their heart wasn't in the right place to start with. This scene is is intended to be a dramatic contrast to what happens next. Because what happened next is an encounter between a man named Nicodemus and Jesus. And I believe Nicodemus, unlike what we just saw in the temple, he was a man who was sincerely seeking after God. 
We know that he was a religious leader. He was a, a part of the Sanhedrin. And what he was doing was risky. So risky that he made a point to travel to visit Jesus at night. Kind of under the cloak of darkness. But I believe his heart was sincere. And he went and said, Jesus, I, I know that what you say and what you do is from God. Who are you? And Jesus goes on to explain who he is and what his mission is. And he goes into great detail. And in the midst of that explanation to this man, Nicodemus, who was truly seeking after God, Jesus says words that are familiar to us all. But I want you to understand now the context in which they are spoken. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, Nicodemus, that whoever believes in me, his only begotten Son, will not perish, but have eternal life. He says, Nicodemus, for God did not send me, the Son of Man, into the world to judge the world, but the world shall be saved through me. I believe Nicodemus listened, he was seeking God, and he came to faith in what Jesus just told him. And the reason I believe that's true is because Nicodemus shows up two more times in Scripture. The first time we see him among his colleagues in the Sanhedrin when they are going through the debate of what they need to do with Jesus. And the consensus of all the religious leaders is he's got to die. We need to kill him. That's the only, thing this goes, the only way this thing goes away. And Nicodemus says, that's a bad idea. Don't do that. Well, of course, they don't listen to him. Jesus is crucified on the cross and Nicodemus shows up a second time. And he takes the body from the cross. He anoints the body and he places it in the tomb because he knows who Jesus is. He truly was seeking after God. I think what John is trying to do to, to us as he's putting these stories together is he wants us to understand that God knows what's in our heart. And when we sincerely seek to know God, we find Him. But when our heart is not in the right place, it doesn't matter how big the miracle is, we're not going to believe. John is writing with purpose. See, Jesus knows the heart of man. And regardless of the religious actions or the profession of faith, He understands what's going on in their heart. But how far does that love extend? I mean, Nicodemus was a religious man. He uh, was doing all the right things, so to speak. But how far would that love of Christ extend? Well, what happens next answers that question. It says that Jesus leaves from this Passover in Jerusalem to go back to Cana. But as you're going north from Jerusalem, you run into the Sea of Galilee, and it's like a fork in the road. You can go left and go through the region of Samaria, kind of a forbidden place for the Jews. They would often opt for the long route on the right. Even though you had to travel farther, you avoided Samaria. But I want you to notice something. It, it says in uh, chapter uh, 4, let's see, verse 4, it says, And he had to pass through Samaria. That's an interesting statement because geographically that's not true. 
there was more than more, one way to get to Cana, and most of them took the other way. But the verse says that he had to pass. Why? Why did he have to pass? Because there was a divine appointment. And Jesus always did the will of his Father. And he had to pass through Samaria because there was a woman at a well who was lost in a life of sin. And he, he needed to talk to her. And so Jesus goes to Samaria and he goes to this well and he meets this woman. And he begins this conversation with her and explains to her about this living water. That once you drink, you never thirst again. And of course she's inquisitive about this and and wants to know more about this living water. And and Jesus explains uh, his person and his mission. And and she understands that there's supposed to be a Messiah. And and we're looking for that Messiah. Look at what he says in... uh, Chapter 4, verse 25. It says, The woman who's been taught Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When that one comes, He will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. He reveals that I am the promised one. And he goes on to explain to her things that are significant about her life, having never met this woman before. Not all that different from Nathaniel. Remember? When Nathaniel came to Jesus, Jesus told him things that Jesus shouldn't have known, having never met him before. But because he's who he is, the living God, he knows these things. He understands the heart of man. And so she trusts him. And she goes back to her people in Samaria, and she begins to tell them about what has happened. And that's what happens in our passage. It says after two days. Well, the two days of the day, two days that he spent in Samaria, where it says in verse 39, that from that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have done. He knows what's in my heart. It's within that context that we then walk into our passage this morning. Let's pick up in verse 47. Talking about this official who was from Capernaum and his son was sick. It says in verse 47, When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was requesting him to come down to heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Jesus therefore said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. The royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my child does, dies. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he started off. And he was now, as he was now going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. They said, therefore, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. This is again a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. 
so Jesus, as we can tell, has now returned to Cana. And now that he comes back to this city, do you think life looks a little different for him? Just think about this. Remember I talked about Cana being a small town, kind of like Abernathy, right? How many of you have grown up in a small town? Okay? You know what life is like in a small town, right? You can't do anything without the whole town knowing about it. Somebody said that if you painted your out, the inside of your outhouse, they would know about it, right? They know about your sicknesses, you know. Oh, John, he has gout. His ankle's as big as a grapefruit, you know. They know everything about your life, your relationships. It's just part of being in a small town. And that was true in the town of Cana. The word had spread. Not just because of the miracle that he had performed at the wedding, but many of these people were in Jerusalem and saw what happened at the Passover. And so it was the talk of town. And this is the reason why that official from Capernaum was able to find Jesus. Now, when he did, he had a need. One of the things that we've got to understand is that Capernaum was an important town in terms of the economy of that. It was a, a place, a, a tax collection center. And so what we know is that this was very likely a wealthy, powerful man of, of influence. He, he worked for the king. He was a, a tax collector. And when it came to the health of his son, however, he was helpless. All that power and influence couldn't heal his son. So he finds Jesus and he asks him to come with him to Capernaum in order to heal his son. And as I listen to this exchange, I wonder if he was trying to make a deal with Jesus, to barter, kind of an exchange of goods. Two men who are obviously of great influence and power, let's make a deal. The reason I think that might have been his heart was because of the response that he received from Jesus. In verse 48, Jesus looks at this man after having made this request and he says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. See, Jesus not only rebuked this man, he rebuked the Galileans in general. The you is plural. Not just you, but all of you. Unless you see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. See, the official is not any different than the sign seekers at the temple who were simply going through the motions, but their heart was not in the right place. This man is really not all that concerned about who Jesus is. What's important to him is what the man can do for him. But Jesus didn't come to impress people with his power. He came to save them with his love. And so, because of that love, he tells the man to return home with just a promise. A promise that his son would be healed. And as we think about that, the simplicity of this encounter, I want us to appreciate the significance of what just happened. He put this man in a place where he would have to take Jesus at his word. You see, the faith that he had to put in the Word of Christ put the focus on the character of Christ and the integrity that he would do what he said he would do. 
see, if Jesus goes to Capernaum with this man, assuming his heart was in the place that I suggested, then it would be nothing more than an exchange of goods. It would be nothing more than two people of power and influence doing each other a favor. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. And I promise you, that would have been a world this royal official would have known well. That's the life he lived. But Jesus was unwilling to play that game when his eternal life was at stake. So Jesus wants this royal official to believe. To believe not only in his power, but more importantly, in his promise. So verse 50 says that the man believed what? The word Jesus spoke to him. He leaves with a promise. He came looking to barter for Jesus' power, but he leaves with a promise. A commitment to trust in God's word alone. Notice what happens. It says that the official believed, and then what does he do next? He obeys. He believed in God's Word. He believed in the Word of Jesus. And then he obeyed. He did what he said. And his faith is confirmed before he ever gets home. Because the slaves in his house meet him along the way. And he inquires about what's happened. And and notice he he wants to know, tell me what happened and, and specifically what time did this occur? And they tell him the specific hour. He Ask the question as if there was a progression. When did he start to get to feeling better? Right? And they said, no, no, no. His fever left him instantly. Your son was near death, but he was healed in an instant. And then it says that he went home and told all of his household, and they all believed. You can imagine what that might have been like, right? The man leaves to go get help, comes back with nothing, and in the process... The son is instantly healed. So the question had to be, what in the world just happened? Who did you talk to? What did he say? How can this be? And the royal official explains. And the word believe is said twice. He believed the word of Jesus and left. And then it says he explained all that occurred and believed once again. I believe the first belief was in the name or in the word that Jesus spoke. And then I believe the second one, as he explained what took place, is who Jesus was. This was the Son of the living God. What he did was a work of God. So that when Jesus claims to be the Messiah, this man, his entire household, takes him at his word. The question is, What about you? What about me? Are you willing to take Jesus at His word? You see, statistically speaking, okay? That's important. Statistically speaking, we live in a Christian society. Which simply means, when asked, the majority of people in our country say that they believe in Jesus. But there is a difference in saying what you believe and believing what you say. And so I want us to follow the the path of our passage to understand what it means to trust in Christ alone. 
And so we need to ask and answer a series of questions as we do that. And I believe they're answered in our passage. The first question is this. Have you been introduced to Christ and did you trust in His promise? See, the officer came to Christ because he had a need in his life. And he wanted to work together with Jesus to resolve that need. Come with me to Capernaum so that you can heal my son. But Jesus, as we've said, was unwilling to comply with that request. What did he know about this man's heart that he was unwilling to do what he had asked? And I've made a suggestion to you about what might have been going on, but... Just for clarification, let's look at another scenario, another event that took place that would be a comparison to help answer that question. Turn to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. This is actually an account very similar to the one in John, recorded in John's Gospel, so similar that a lot of times people get these confused and say that they're the same one. They're really distinctly different than one another, and I wanted you to see how. So Luke chapter 7, verse 1. When he had completed all his discourse in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. And a certain centurion slave, who was highly regarded by him, was sick and about to die. And when he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. And when they had come to Jesus, they earnestly entreated him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation. And it was he who built us our synagogue. Now Jesus started on his way with them, and when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason... I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him and turned and said to the multitude that was following him, I say to you, Not even in Israel have I found such great faith. For when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. Very similar story, isn't it? Here you have another man of of power and influence. It's so significant. It was his friends who, on his behalf, say, Listen, if anybody deserves what this man is asking, he's the one. The synagogue that we have was, was built by, by him. He's a good, a good man. But apparently, the man himself did not necessarily agree with their sentiments. Because he explained to Jesus through his servants that he chose not to come to Jesus. Because why? He says, I'm not worthy to be in your presence. You just say the word and my servant will be healed. And verse 8 explains the basis of his faith. And he goes on to talk about how he had authority. And there were certain people under his authority. And when he told them to do things, they responded. His point is, I have a limited realm of authority. But those who are under that realm do what I say and they obey. But you have an unlimited realm 
of authority. Because you have an unlimited power. And whatever you say will be done. That is a profession of understanding who Jesus is. He has unlimited power. Unlimited authority. Things reserved to God alone. When we understand the, the magnitude of who God is and His holiness, we also understand the significance of our sin before Him. Look throughout Scripture and you'll see the evidence of that truth. Just think, for example, of Isaiah, right? Remember when Isaiah was in the presence of God and do you recall what he said? Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. This man knew who Jesus was. See, the royal official was rebuked because he felt justified to make his request. Jesus had something that was of benefit to his personal need. It's as if he was saying, I'm doing pretty good on my own, but, but I could really use your help in this particular situation. He came to Jesus because of what he could do for him not because of who He was. And I think we often make the same mistake. We say we believe in Jesus because we've got this particular problem and He's got a solution, so let's make a deal. We want Him to make our life better. But we prefer that He does it on our terms. More of a tune-up, really, than a complete overhaul, right? But like the royal official, we can't come with the desire to have an exchange of goods. If you would, turn to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, verse 34. Mark chapter 8, verse 34. There's a question at the end of this little, these verses that I want you to consider as it relates to what we're talking about. Verse 34 says, And he summoned the multitude and his, with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels shall save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? There's the question. What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Can we make a deal? The answer is no. What can a man give in exchange for his soul? Nothing. Nothing. You see, our salvation is not based on a deal that we make with God, because when it comes to the redemptive work in our life, we have nothing to offer. The more we understand the holiness of God, the more we appreciate our own depravity. And it's true that anyone who comes to Jesus with a need, like the man in our story, always leaves with a promise. The question is. Are you willing to take Him at His word? 
Do you believe that His unlimited power, His unlimited authority is what you need to restore life in your soul? If that's what you believe, then get in the wheelbarrow. And here's how we know if we're truly responding in faith. Continue to follow the the story of our passage. Listen to what the man did. He believed, and then what? He obeyed. He believed what God said, what Jesus said, and then he obeyed. So does your belief turn into obedience? Too often we say we believe, but yet we're unwilling to align our life with God's Word. We prefer to to customize our Christianity to fit our preferred lifestyle. We're quick to say we believe, but obedience is the evidence that you mean what you say. Romans 6.16 tells us that we are all slaves to the one we obey. Either sin resulting in death or obedience to God resulting in righteousness. The key to that verse is knowing that we're on common ground in the sense that we're all slaves. What distinguishes us is our master. And Jesus makes it clear in his own words that we can't serve two masters. We either love the one and hate the other or despise the one and love the other. Belief in God is evidenced in aligning our life with His Word so that His righteousness is revealed in our life. If it looks any different, you're serving the wrong master. Swindoll tells a conversation that he had with uh, General Charles Duke, who was one of the astronauts in Apollo 16 in the mission to the moon. He says it was a fascinating conversation to hear all about the details of that mission and what it was like to experience what what he experienced. And and Swindoll, in this conversation, kind of asked him, he says, you know, when you got up there, could you kind of do what you wanted to do in terms of see some things? I mean, all excited with with what you were doing? He said, oh, no. He says, we had to make sure that we did everything according to the plan, down to the finest of details. And whenever we heard from mission control, we obeyed immediately. Because there was too much at stake and it was timed too much, um, too specific, and we, we couldn't afford to just chart our own course. And so he went on to explain that, that on the mission they landed, he said, landed heavy. What that means is they landed with a little more fuel than they anticipated. Guess how much fuel they had, how long the fuel in that uh, ship, uh, how long it lasted? One minute and that was more than they expected that's how fine detailed the instructions and the planning was and how important it was for them to follow the commands of mission control swindoll in this conversation concludes his thought he says you know a rebel doesn't fit in a spacesuit. he must have unconditional respect for authority and I want you to think about that and, and realize that it wasn't restrictive. Just think of what this man, General Duke, was able to experience because of what he was willing 
to do, the, the privilege that it afforded him. He was able to experience a world that few of us, probably any of us, will ever know. And from his vantage point, looking at earth from the moon, don't you think that God got really big to him? You see, faithful obedience to God works the same way. It introduces us to a whole new world. When we experience the transforming work of His Spirit in our life, we begin to understand the greatness of God. And like General Duke, we now have a story to tell. You see, the official went home. And what did he do? He told all of his family, everybody in his household, what had happened and why it had happened and who it was who had done it. And we are afforded that same privilege. Let me close with this passage, familiar. You can just listen as I read uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 14. It says, But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, uh, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation or be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense for everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence, and keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. What Peter is saying here is that when your good behavior, when that righteousness that is revealed in your life because of your faith in Christ matches your profession of faith, you become a walking testimony to the miraculous power of of God in your life. You experience a worldview that very few understand. And I believe that the desire to tell that story is evidence of your faith. But it all boils down to taking Jesus at His word. Believing that He has unlimited power because of His unlimited authority. And that salvation is in Christ alone. See, the evidence of your faith is seen in your surrendered life, your sacrifice of obedience, your story of faith. Don't just say what you believe. Believe what you say. Living a life that gives testimony of the hope that is within you. To put it another way, get in the wheelbarrow. Just see what God can do. Let's pray together. Father, we uh, thank you for the privilege to once again uh, be introduced to another evidence of your power and majesty through the person of Christ. That we see who you are revealed in his life. Having unlimited power, unlimited authority to bring salvation to the hearts of those who truly seek you. And we see that whether they're lost in sin or whether they're just going through the religious ritual or whether they're sincerely seeking you, without exception, your desire is to bring them to a place of faith, a trust in the promise of your word, the word that you are the son of the living God and that salvation is in your name. So, Father, I pray... 
along with what Paul had suggested earlier, that we look at life differently because of what this truth has taught us today. That we see through the eyes of faith the world that you desire us to live in and the testimony that you call us to share. May we live a life that is truly surrendered to you, that lives in that sacrificial obedience, your will, Father, and not ours. And may we tell our story of faith to those around us. We pray this in the name of Christ.